Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we've got an old friend back on the History Hit Warfare podcast, Dr. Pablo Diorellana from King's College London. He's got a new book out. It's called The Road to Vietnam, and it focuses on what he calls the First Vietnam War, that war that pitted Imperial France against the anti-colonial Viet Minh rebel alliance after the Second World War. He also explains how across this period, the French then ultimately tried to persuade the Americans to join a fight against what the French called a fascist-aligned Viet Minh, the idea that Ho Chi Minh was for some reason a fascist, but then a whole range of tactics that led the Americans to be persuaded that now they were a communist, Soviet, Chinese-aligned Viet Minh. And then, of course, for the Americans to fund the French and then to start their own war through the 60s and the 70s. That idea that if Vietnam fell, well, it would be the first in a series of dominoes that would fall, that would lead to the defeat of capitalism. I know you're really going to enjoy this history. Pablo's been able to unearth so many hidden gems from the archives. Here's Pablo Diorellana on the French in Vietnam. Hi, Pablo. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you very much for having me back, James. Not a problem at all. It's great to have you back. And it's crazy to think that it's over a year since we last spoke on this podcast. Tell us, how have you been? What have you been up to? I've been very well. I've, I've continued to research the history of nationalist ideas. Right now, I'm working on research exploring how the new nationalists, Trump and company, are applying their ideas trying to create their world by changing global rules. The new nationalists and new norms. Is that going to be a title for your book? Uh, it sounds like a good title for a book, indeed. I should consider <laughs> you can it. Have Thank it. you. You can have it. You Thank you. Have to pay See, a I always gain something from here. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you're super busy, so thank you so much for taking the time. You're a lecturer at King's. Tell us, how is term going? Are you teaching in person? Uh, yes, we're teaching in person again. I have to say it's exhilarating. I missed being in person with students and how much easier it is. It's so much less work and so much more effective. You know, you can spend a day preparing a lecture's worth of materials online and it's still not as effective as two hours in person. You're not wrong. I think also just that ability to discuss in depth, to discuss as a group, which you just can't do online via Zoom. I mean, it's almost reassuring that we know that the future of universities probably won't be purely online because I think we all really have missed that in-person element. 
I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, it is proof of the, the enormous validity and need for in-person teaching, but also the social aspect of universities, how much students learn by talking amongst one another after a seminar with us. I think this is more obvious now than ever before how valuable that was. Well, there we go. We've done our plug for the survival of universities. Now we can step off our soapbox and we can talk about the real topic we're here to discuss today, which is the road to Vietnam, America, France, Britain, and what you call the first Vietnam War. So I'm going to start with an easy question. Well, seemingly easy anyway, but I can imagine it's probably quite difficult to pin down. When does the Vietnam War start? Is this 1954 with active US involvement, or is it much earlier? Having written this book woke me to the fact that it's very difficult to distinguish the various Indochina or Vietnam Wars. And I think it's also very important to highlight that from the Vietnamese side of this experience, it wasn't the American War, the famous one that mattered on its own. From from the Vietnamese perspective, we're talking about 25 years of non-stop war, basically from 1940 until 1973, the way they see it. The Japanese War first, then the French War, which is the topic of this book, then the American War in Vietnam, and then the Chinese invade Vietnam in 79, as if the previous wars had not been enough. And Vietnam won them all. And Vietnam won them all. Well, that's a good point to take away there, isn't it? I mean, and the overall war itself that leads to independence through into the 70s. So take this back to the Second World War, because it's actually your book that seems to start us at this point, in the latter years of 1945, going into 1946. And you use this term in your book. You you talk about French intransigence and Anglo-Saxon apathy. What is it about this, or what does this mean during this period, that leads to that early days of conflict? Well, the conflict arises over the collapse of French colonialism during World War II because then the Chinese colony had been taken by the Japanese and the Vietnamese started fighting the Japanese themselves. But also Western promises, the Dumbarton Oaks Declaration, the Atlantic Charter, all of which promised self-determination, but this time, unlike World War I, globally, subject peoples around the world will be able to determine their futures, especially if they had been involved in the conflict against the Axis powers. And so the Vietnamese took this quite literally. They took this as a promise from Roosevelt and Churchill that their self-determination, their efforts against the Japanese, that their alliance with the Americans. I mean, in this period, Ho Chi Minh was CIA agent 71, OSS during World War II, helping the Americans against the Japanese. So they expected the United States in particular as a post-colonial power, whom they considered the exemplary post-colonial power, to help them essentially resist the French reoccupation of Indochina. The French refuse, send their greatest World War II hero, General Leclerc, to retake the colony. In the meantime, the Vietnamese, in September 1945, declare independence, quoting the American Declaration of Independence, you know, uh, we are all created equal, blah, blah, blah. And the French refuse this Declaration of Independence. There are failed negotiations in Fontainebleau in Paris, which are sabotaged by the governor general of the colony back in Indochina. And essentially, war breaks out by late 45, early 46, with a fierce battle in Haiphong, the so-called Haiphong incident. And the French begin this war in a typically colonial fashion, thinking small, effective intervention with foreign troops. The vast majority of French troops are actually Germans that have been drafted into the Foreign Legion, including two entire Waffen-SS divisions, that are captured in Lorraine at the end of World War II. Yeah. But the French can't really afford this war. 
And so the moment the war goes any longer than six months, they start needing material, they start needing finance, they start needing air support that France can't afford at this point, between 45, 46, 47. And so the book concerns French efforts to persuade the United States that these pesky rebels aren't just anti-colonial. They are essentially Stalinist stooges, part of the global Cold War. And so we have this fascinating diplomatic turnaround where in 45, the French are telling the Americans, no, no, the Vietnamese are like the Nazis. We need to get rid of them and liberate Indochina from these rebels. Clearly, the Americans don't buy that Ho Chi Minh is a fascist. Is that the comparison that's made at the time? Is it kind of a yeah. broad brush Nazism? This is a, another element, another step in that evil plague that spread across the world and must be destroyed. Absolutely. That, that's exactly how the French tried to present the Vietnamese. Not, not least because if you get classified, James, as you know an Axis ally, you just get wiped out in the, in the year following World War II. You're part of the cleanup, you see, and the Allies do the dirty work for you, essentially. Having said that, if you get classified, like Ho Chi Minh wanted, as an Allied combatant, it's a completely different situation. I mean, the French failed to persuade the Americans that, you know, the Vietnamese rebels are fascist allies and allies of the Japanese empire during World War II. Having said that, they don't manage to persuade the Western powers that Vietnam deserves independence. And all of this while the French are deploying thousands of former Waffen-SS into Vietnam. The irony there is abound, isn't it, Pablo? Yeah, and in fact, one of my favourite diplomatic... So all of this was researched through tens of thousands of diplomatic documents from archives all over the world, including the French colonial archives, which are quite rare, and they live in Aix-en-Provence in the south. And one of the most incredible exchanges I found in the diplomatic communication was the American consul in Saigon. And he writes back to Washington saying, I swear I've heard a lot of German, but not like not a bit, a lot of German. I'm going to I'm going to investigate tomorrow. So he goes to the chief of police of Saigon who tells him, no, there are no Germans here. He's like, and the, the consul is like, no, I'm really pretty sure yesterday was Christmas and I heard a lot of drunken Germans singing all Tannenbaum. I would not confuse this. And denials, 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 even though, to be honest, a few battalions of drunken Germans are not to be confused. <laughs> no, I, it's it's hard to confuse a drunken German. You're not wrong. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. So when does this then start to successfully be turned towards more of a, a Stalinist domino theory effect? When does this start to take purchase? So this is a very slow turnaround. Here, the French essentially go on a campaign. As I've mentioned in 45, they try to get the Viet Minh to be classified with the Japanese fascists. It doesn't work. And they begin the kind of communistification, shall we say, in their representation and diplomacy of the Vietnamese rebels, whom we should call the Viet Minh, Viet Minh Vietnam Doc Lap Dong Minh Hoi, the League for the Independence of Vietnam. And so this begins essentially in early 1946. In my book, we explore in a lot of detail the very words used and so on. And for the first year and a half, the Americans don't buy it. We have really clear analysis of the State Department saying the French are trying to play us. We're not going to do this. We're not going to play the dirty colonial game. We have nothing to gain. Quite the opposite. The colonial world will hate us, will not see us as a beacon of freedom and an exemplary post-colonial power. If we keep doing this, the goodwill that we gained by giving the Philippines independence in July 46 will be wasted. And the goodwill that Britain made by giving India independence between 46 and, and for late 47 will be wasted. Uh, quite the opposite, they try to encourage the French to do an India. 
essentially negotiate for gradual self-government reunification and independence. And the French refuse, refuse in a variety of ways, one of which has major impacts on the, on the Second Vietnam War, the, the American one, and that is reunification. French essentially invented, destroyed Vietnam. It was illegal to mention the word empire of Vietnam in colonial Vietnam. And so the old empire of Vietnam that had existed for 1,500 years was divided into three countries, Tonkin, Annam, and Cochinchin. And to sabotage the peace talks between the rebels and the central French government, the governor of Indochina essentially declared a kind of semi-independence of Cochinchin under French protection, making it impossible for it to be reunified. Cochinchin is basically the heart of South Vietnam. It has the, the big French population and it had the big Catholic convert population that was a lot more pro-French. And so this would come to, in, in many ways, structure the Second Vietnam War, the American one, by, with the South being separated away and being a question. In many ways, from the Vietnamese perspective, the American war was fought for unification. I see. That's such an interesting way of looking at the Vietnam War. I've got to ask, though, what, what's the French motivation here to hold on to those last dregs of empire? Surely we can see that the tides have turned, that the, the British, of course, like you say, have led the way with uh, with India, and then we've had the Philippines. Is this something that, that can't be stopped? Or are the French just desperate to hold on to economic gains? Or is this domestic politics at play? What's motivating the French here? But it's complicated. So, so you would think that economic factors would be the most important. But at this point, uh, colonies are not. Um, so, for instance, Indochine, even though it was a it was a classified as an exploitation colony, where even governing it was supposed to pay for itself, turned out to be quite expensive. Colonization is very expensive at the government and military level, and it's difficult to balance out the books from trade. World War II had destroyed the Indochinese economy and the French economy. But I don't think the economy was a key part of the argument. In '46, we see De Gaulle, still as prime minister, give a speech in the Assemblée Nationale, in the French parliament, and he, he says very, very clearly why. He says, it's not about money. It's not about even the size of the population of the French empire. This is about grandeur. It's about our place amongst other nations. And De Gaulle explicitly says, using these words, ruling over 600 million inferior peoples and races proves the grandeur of the French race. That is why we must retain our beautiful balcony over the Pacific to re retain our paternalistic relationship with the Indochinese races that need us. So de Gaulle is in no way convinced about decolonialism. This is not something that he wants to pursue in any way, shape or form going forwards. Not at all. And in fact, it's interesting because de Gaulle would later do a very decolonial move when he became president again uh, in 1960, which would be to give up on Algeria, which is why we don't associate him with resisting decolonization. But de Gaulle was at the heart of the resistance to decolonize. It was de Gaulle that appointed that governor to run into China, the one that sabotaged the peace talks, the one that began the war, the one that recruited the Germans and so on and so forth, Dargenier, who was a warrior priest who had participated in the colonization of Morocco. All the other big generals, the one that is, for instance, uh, parodied in the Battle of Algiers, Valuit, who had fought in the, the, the butcher of Algiers, and many others made, cut their teeth in colonial Indochina. In many ways, you could argue that the goal was at the heart of a massive military Catholic and colonial establishment that was obsessed with colonialism, not from an economic perspective, but literally from a race power perspective, from a perspective of this proves France is great, controlling Algeria, controlling Indochina, you know, entire civilizations with bigger populations than France.
Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So when does this first war end and this second war begin? I suppose what I'm asking is what led US policymakers to become convinced that Vietnam posed any threat to American interests? Ah, well, let me tell you the story of, of the persuasion here. because I, I, I want to hear the story of the persuasion, Pablo. Tell me. Because I, I, as I said, the, the French are not doing very well persuading the Americans that, you know, uh, our rebels' enemies are communist stooges and of the, of the Stalin school. This right, this ridiculous reports that, this, that the CIA is at pains to prove. So, for instance, in early 1947, the French are like, we found proof. We found proof. There are eight Soviet advisors traveling through Guangdong, the southern China, to Indochina. We're going to catch them. Fine. And so the OSS, which has just become the CIA, in a second ever mission around the world, 
essentially sends a, a, a few agents to hunt down these Soviet agents, these Soviet advisors that, you know, because Vietnamese could not exist on its own. It's impossible that an Oriental people, according to the French, could mount such brutal and effective resistance against the French Empire. And so, you know, the, the uh, young CIA hunts down these Soviet advisors in southern China, and it turns out that they are tramps. They're dressed in rags, and several of them have run away from a gulag in Siberia and have been walking for three years. So, you know, the Soviet advisors turn out not to be Soviet advisors. They're basically Russian tramps stealing chickens from every village they, they visit. And there is no proof. The CIA cannot find proof, which basically sabotages and undermines the French argument that this is part of a global communist conspiracy, not least because the Vietnamese rebels aren't just communists. There is a communist party as part of the League, but you also have monarchists, Catholics, conservatives. You've got the Vietnamese KMT supported and, and helped by the Chinese KMT, so right-wing nationalist party that is part of the same alliance with Ho Chi Minh and the communists and so on. Even the monarchists are part of this alliance because it's the League for the Independence of Vietnam. The, the, the pact being we get rid of the French and then, you know, we have political competition between us. And so the, the, the Americans are not persuaded at all by this. And the key reason why they're not persuaded is that they don't buy that France is willing to even give any autonomy or independence to the Vietnamese. They don't buy it because there is no plan to let Vietnam go. And therefore, this proves, in counterproof, so to speak, that this was a colonial story, not a communism story, right, in the 1940s. And this is very interesting because the two descriptions of each other coexisted, but made each other unbelievable. They could not coexist. You couldn't France could not be an anti-communist power trying to hold on to its colony at the same time as fighting an anti-communist war and not a war of colonial conquest. This basically meant that the Americans were really not enthusiastic at all about helping, at all. And uh, as late as 1947, we find the Americans doubting and saying, no, no, we'll sell you a couple of weapons, but we're not giving you surplus, this and that. Now, then Britain gets involved. Britain gets involved because Britain is anticipating, correctly it turns out, trouble in Malaya, communist trouble. And when the so-called Malaya emergency begins to bubble over at the end of 47 and in 48, this means that the British also get involved. Because it turns out Britain and France after World War II, their attitude to when they have any problems is, let's get the Americans to help. And this is, in the case of the UK, this is actually government strategy. I found this in cabinet papers saying, when we don't have enough power, we just get the Americans to help. And this is what happened in Malaya. To fight the Malayan emergency, the British end up helping the French also persuade the Americans that the Vietnam problem is a communist problem. Because this makes it seem to the Americans, you know, Southeast Asia is being taken over by Stalinist stooges. And still, it doesn't work. The Americans are persuaded by the Malaya argument, but not the Vietnam argument. And they're not persuaded because they can see that the French have no plans whatsoever to give the Vietnamese a say or any democracy or anything like that. And so the French do something very clever. They change governor for a second time. And the, the man they put as governor had been political officer of the colony for quite a few years. And he had a lot of experience of American thinking on colonialism. And so he essentially copies American communications around the time of the Philippines' independence to describe French attitudes to colonization in American terms. He learns to speak of the plan to give Vietnam some autonomy in terms that the Americans will understand using American ideas. 
he, they, in practice, it was a new solution, essentially, to have the emperor as a puppet emperor of a Vietnamese state. So the new solution was the old solution. The only difference was that it was written in terms of progressive colonialism that the French believed correctly that the Americans would understand. This stabilized the claims that the French were making, essentially, about communism and our own colonialism. It's not about colonialism anymore, it's only about communism. Which tells us that sometimes persuading you of something isn't just persuading you of this, but it's also sabotaging the chances of a counter-argument, of any countervailing argument that might destabilize the whole. Um, diplomatically, this was a thrilling piece of research because it's thousands of documents and you're looking at communications back and forth. And at this point, the Vietnamese are also trying to make their point. They're writing to the United Nations, they're writing to President Truman, to the Prime Minister here in London, to the Presidents of France. They're making huge efforts and the French are hunting them down you know, through the jungles to get their letters, to not, not to let them communicate with the Americans in particular. So you've got a future minister of Vietnamese Minister of Health, Dr. Thatch, you know, walking through the, the jungle in rainy season, trying to make it to Bangkok to hand Ho Chi Minh's letters to Truman, to the American embassy. Really, really amazing stuff. In the end, by late 1947, the French argument has worked. Their fake giving of independence to Vietnam was kind of believed by the Americans. It was believed sufficiently to believe the anti-communism story, and the Americans start paying. Essentially, for the following few years, by 1954, the Americans will be paying for nearly 8% of the French war effort. If you go to the last chapter of my book, where you, the, that begins with a picture of a soldier walking in a rice paddy, in many ways that picture is telling you is very telling of what they're trying to achieve. It's page 200. And what I love about this picture, and, and this is only the kind of thing that you can learn at war studies in a department of, that, like mine, where you take this picture around your colleagues and they say, ah, is that tank? Is that uniform? Is that rifle? Within an afternoon, my colleagues had managed to identify literally every piece of uniform that he's wearing, the tank, even the little water bottle he has got in his belt. And the reason for this is that all this is all World War II American equipment. Ah, I see. So it's, it's three wars here, though. You've got the first war with the French, and then you've got a, a war over strategic communication between the French and the Americans. This is, and literally censoring as much as possible the information getting through from the Vietnamese themselves. And then, of course, you have the big war, the third war that comes in, where the Americans start to slowly get involved. And so it starts with money. It starts with equipment. How does this quickly evolve into a troop presence? And then how does it become convinced that it is, it is a communist cause? Do you then start to see those that are looking for independence in Vietnam? Do they start to court external help from China, from the Soviet Union? Is it here that it becomes a marriage of not just convenience, but necessity, because the Americans have come in on the side of the French. That's exactly what happens. I, I, what I might do, perhaps, is add a bit of flesh onto those bones. What we see in this period is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Ho Chi Minh, the, at this point, had written over 800 letters to Truman. By 1948, stops, because Truman isn't answering anymore. The Americans aren't even bothering to say thanks for the telegrams and the letters. The French are also fighting their information warfare, not only against the Americans. It's very important to say the French colonial establishment is fighting an, a, a strategic communications war against France itself, lying to the French. And this is easy because you don't have French bodies coming back. You have German and Senegalese and Algerian bodies, but not many French bodies, only the officers. Oh, of hang on, hang on, hang on. That is a, that is a point that is, is massively overlooked. I've not 
ever thought about that. So when we think about the costs of war, when we think about how democracies get involved with the decisions that policymakers make, we think clearly about the body bags coming home. We only need to look back to recent history, to Iraq and Afghanistan and the calls to withdraw us back from that war. And it's one of the reasons today why we wage war by remote control, right? We, we use drones and so on and so forth. But back then, what you're talking about is that the deaths of frontline soldiers, they're not French, so it doesn't matter so much. Yeah, and they're cheaper. They're politically cheaper. And this war was politically cheap back in Paris for two reasons. One, because the central government censored news coming from Indochina. Two, because the Indochinese government lied back to the French parliament, lied through their teeth about money, about debt, about war crimes. A UN investigation began on, on war crimes in this war, and the Indochinese government said, oh, no, not at all, it must be a lie by the Vietnamese. It's, and as you say, it's politically cheaper because you don't have as many bodies coming back. That's one of the key aspects of colonial wars. They're cheap because you get the other colonial peoples to fight them. You get the Algerians to fight your war in, in Vietnam. That's why the Algerian war was so different. Because the Algerian war was the last. It was the last big colony and you couldn't fight the Algerians with other Algerians. The Algerian war necessitated tens of thousands of French soldiers which, who come back and talk or come back and are dead. And that cost. And it, it had a different place in the French consciousness, in the French psyche as well. This is metropolitan France, isn't it, Algeria, as opposed yeah. to, like you say, the, the balcony overlooking the Pacific. It has a different place in the French mind. But, I mean, so you've, you've got to take us through then to these final steps, because I'm fascinated to see how this comes through. When do the Americans start to deploy troops on the ground? So the Americans don't deploy troops until 1965. What happens in between? The first advisors are in 1963. What happens in between is essentially a very, very slow turnover from the French war into the American war via the creation of a southern Vietnamese state, which was a nightmare of epic proportions. Essentially, the Vietnamese fight the French into a stalemate. And the French, just like the Americans after them, and the Chinese after them, and the Japanese before them, keep underestimating the Vietnamese. Very famous Battle of Dien Bien Phu, you know, Colonel Pirot, a famous artillery guy in France, says, you know, the Vietnamese will never do coordinated artillery over Dien Bien Phu. You know, months later, Ziap has literally dragged the cannon by hand up the mountains surrounding Dien Bien Phu, and Colonel Pirot commits suicide because he had underestimated the Vietnamese, which they keep doing. By 1954, the French are done, completely done. They're, this war has cost a fortune and they have got nowhere. The Vietnamese hate them more than ever. And so the French tried to rescue the situation in the Geneva negotiations of 1954. And the French reinvent themselves as the defenders of Catholic and capitalist Vietnamese, because in the, between 1948 and 1954, what has happened is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Vietnamese, after seven years of writing to the Americans and to the British asking for help, they stop. And Ho Chi Minh does something he really didn't want to do, which is he writes to Mao. They hated each other. They were philosophically opposed. Not, not just Sino-Soviet splits. This is very, very different. The Vietnamese are obsessed with Chinese colonization. Vietnam used to be a Chinese colony. And it was the only Chinese colony that ever, ever managed to rebel itself into long-term independence, which is why Japan and Vietnam are the only countries in Asia that also claim the title of emperor in, in the ancient Taoist way of thinking about the statehood. And so they have to ask Mao for help. And Mao puts conditions. Mao, in 1951, issues a whole page of conditions that I found at the archives for help, for Chinese help, mostly artillery, weapons, and aircraft. And... It begins 
with saying it is time for the Vietnamese revolution to show its true colors and have a drive of communistic purification. And so, with the help of Chinese advisors, the Viet Minh essentially have to purge the alliance that I mentioned earlier. It was a very uh, diverse alliance that had from monarchists to Catholics to conservatives to revolutionary communists to even anarchists, all fighting the French. And so the alliance has to be purged. It's changed and it becomes the Communist Party of Vietnam. So it becomes more, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Chinese help in the fight against the French. The Americans help more. That's how we get to 80% of the conflict being paid for by the Americans by 1954. The French abandon the colony in the negotiations in Geneva in 1954. But, 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 to save face, they split the country in two so that the South could be Catholic and more closely associated to France. It becomes part of the so-called French Union, which was supposed to be the equivalent of the British Commonwealth, and is supported by France. France helps one famous priest called Gordon Ziem run a campaign called Jesus Goes South. Ziem would become a very popular politician because of this campaign and would later be, become, make himself dictator of South Vietnam with French and American help, particularly French, because this is the spirit of the warrior Catholic, um, shall we say, uh, colonial warriors of, of the early 20th century. And so in this period, South Vietnam finds itself under counterattacks by North Vietnam that says this is ridiculous, this is an artificial state created by the colonial powers and by the US. Um, we want to re reunification, just like we wanted before during the French Empire, and so they keep fighting for reunification. So the American war begins in this ridiculous situation where the Americans think that they're trying to keep South Vietnam free, and the North Vietnamese think South Vietnam is basically a colonial fiction that needs reunification of Vietnam. Um, fascinatingly, in this period, the Americans don't even notice that the Vietnamese get on so badly with the Chinese, so badly, that they switch alliance and they come to depend on the Soviet Union. Because the obsession with seeing all the communist world as one monolith run by Stalin was too strong, you see. But that was not the case. The Chinese uh, communists and the, and the Soviet communists, particularly after the death of Stalin and the repudiation of Stalinism, hate each other. They're rivals. Um, and the Soviet Union comes to help North Vietnam against South Vietnam and the United States, whilst the, Ch whilst the Chinese are actually helping Cambodia against Vietnam. And that's why China invades Vietnam in 1979 in support of its little Maoist ally, Cambodia. And of course, by this point, global politics has changed as well. The Cold War has cooled down and heated back up again to, you know, astronomical proportions. You know, we're talking, once we start having troops on the ground, we're after the Cuban Missile Crisis, we're after tensions have reached their highest points. But when we look back at this, and when you've gone through the archives, where do you point your finger? Who is to blame for the start of this war in Vietnam? Is this an issue of just the French holding on to their imperial ambitions and being very good at it? Is this a bit of naivety from the Americans? Should have their intelligence agencies have been just that little bit better? Where should we point that finger? Initially, when I began this research, I, I was very interested in pointing the finger at American misunderstanding of the situation. Because what comes through here is that Britain understands very well what's happening on the ground in Indochina. Really, really well. That there is a sophisticated understanding of the colonial issues and so on and so forth. Not, not empathy, but there's an in-depth understanding of who they are, actors are, and so on. 
American diplomats at the beginning can't even spell the names. They can't spell Ho Chi Minh, they can't spell Viet Minh, they can't spell Ziap, <laughs> although they would learn Ziap <laughs> much later. But this was a simplistic temptation um, that was completely destroyed when I realized how unwilling American policymakers, militaries, and diplomats were to get involved in Vietnam. They, they were really explicit about it, as in like the French are trying to play us using the communist argument to get us to pay for their colonial war. What was also surprising is that France at this point was not in a mood for colonial war either. France was destroyed after World War II. It was in a mood for reconstruction. The left was really, really influential, even though the left was just as colonial as the right in France. And so when you're trying to pinpoint where does this willingness to go into, you know, 20-year-long carnage come from, you find yourself essentially bringing it down to a very few individuals who are obsessed with the meaning of this colony, who are fixated with what is lost if France loses this colony. If I were to point the finger, I would point to a group of people that I call the colonial triumvirate, to steal um, Lawrence's, what, what a key Vietnam scholar's term for the colonial establishment. But even though he refers to them as mostly military, I would argue that it was military and political. I would say de Gaulle as an extreme ethno-nationalist, Leclerc as the kind of the war hero on the ground, legitimizing the war, even though he lost on the ground. And crucially, Admiral d'Argentlieu. Admiral d'Argentlieu begins several wars in this period, colonial wars. It is their intransigence that is behind what would, the carnage that would then continue in Algeria. These wars are all connected by the same attitudes. Um, many of these generals come back and they fight in Algeria. Uh, Valui and many others would be key to the Algerian war. Think that the guy that was president, that was prime minister, when they declared war on the Vietnamese rebels in 1946, yeah, he is so keen to preserve Algeria later, in the late 50s, so keen, James, that he begins a coup d'etat in France. They invade Corsica with a foreign legion, okay? They're going to destroy France's own democracy to keep Algeria French. That's how much this mattered to them, ruling over these inferior races, you see? And so Vietnam is only the first of this. We've got Vietnam, we've got completely forgotten Madagascar, massive rebellion in the late 1940s, 1950s, we've got massive rebellions in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, and in West Africa, all of it very repressed. And then, of course, late 50s begins the big Algerian war. And the Algerian war is a nightmare, again, as we mentioned earlier, because the French are having to fight it with French. <laughs> For the first time, you've got thousands of bodies coming back. But also the Algerians have a presence in France. And this makes a very, very big difference because what happened in Vietnam, far from your sight, far from your heart, cannot happen in Algeria. You've got a million and a half Frenchmen in Algiers, the news are going to travel. And carnage on this scale, you know, mass killings and beatings, things like what, it, what the French called collective justice and citizen justice in the context of colonial war, where you punish a whole town for, because there's one rebel kind of thing. This gets back. And it didn't get back at the time of the Vietnam War, but it did get back to France in the time of the Algerian War. And in this context, I think it was very stupid of the Americans to get involved. It was a war that could not be won because what was being defended was South Vietnam, was a fiction essentially created by Darjean Lieu. The tragedy is that these colonialists, these colonial obsessives, never really had to pay for what they, the amount of pain and blood that they brought to France, to Vietnam and to Algeria. The prime minister that tried to do a coup d'etat in France had to exile himself and was then pardoned 
and France has still not digested its colonial history at all. You can see it in French attitudes to migration and to the ex-colonies and particularly to Africa and the Orient as they call it today. France remains unreformed in its thinking about colonization and the colonies and the wars that kick them out of their colonies. Well, Pablo, I think your book really does show us about the power of an idea and the importance of just those few people that can take that idea forwards. I suppose it shows us the power of a small group think dynamic and how that can really change the world for for better, or in this case, perhaps for worse. You also outlined a number of topics there that I can see being your next book and the book after that and the book after that. And I can't wait to have you back on the podcast to talk about them. But tell us, where can we learn more about this topic? Well, you can buy my book, The Road to Vietnam by Pablo Dorelana. Um, it's fun and interesting. It's also extremely detailed in some parts because it looks at how these descriptions, these subjectivities, how do I persuade your boss, James, that you are the real danger? that you must be done away with for the good of all. It's probably easily done. It wouldn't take much persuasion. <laughs> well, you, we would discover the conditions of possibility. It may well be the case, for instance, that we have to persuade him of something else as part of persuading him of your evil, right? And how dangerous you are to the rest of the faculty, which is what happens in Vietnam. Another excellent, excellent, excellent book on this topic is Imagining Vietnam and America by Philip Bradley is exceptional and it looks as well at the role of identity, of racism, of imagining each other that shaped this war. So very unexpected things, for instance, for me was the Ho Chi Minh archive. It was seeing his communications to Truman, to Atli, and it was incredible how much he believed that America would be on Vietnam's side. It's really quite heartbreaking with the hindsight of what would happen. You've got these letters saying, you know, I sailed under the Statue of Liberty into New York. I lived in your country for a year. I know about American values. I felt that every last of us had rights. We want this for ourselves. You kick the English away. We want to do the same with the French. Help us. And these communications are heartbreaking. Well, Pablo, what a note to finish on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, James. This has been a joy. Thank you again. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to subscribe so you can access our original cutting-edge military histories each week, twice a week, every week. And if you think there's a history we need to cover, or you want to share your own family histories, then email us directly on warfareathistoryhit.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.